Amen, amen. Hey, it's good to be back with you. I'm so thankful for Justin and for Joel filling in the last couple of weeks. Man, my, I'm really um, very, uh, found to be very much in respect of Joel, how he somehow managed to get Justin to volunteer to preach with less than 24 hours notice, and, and somehow that felt like to Justin it was his idea, like, right? I mean, that's just, that's amazing. Like, I think we're still working that out. Not really sure how that came to be. Joel got a full week's notice. Justin got like 20 hours and change. And so thankful to the Lord for those guys, for the way they stepped up and, and uh, led you on Easter and led you last week to, just to encounter the Lord. And I, I know that was a sweet time. And I'm thankful for the way that God has gifted them and the way that he has been gracious to us as a church, letting us enjoy their giftedness. Uh, This morning, uh, we are back in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Really, 3 through 8 is kind of a unit of thought, but because of some of what he says in 7 and 8, I wanted to take a longer time to expound that and and what he says in 3 through 6. Same argument, right? And so, hey, let me me pray for us, pray for our time together, and then we'll walk through this passage, uh, Lord willing. Father God, we thank you for your goodness, for the opportunity, for the gift it is to gather here in this place, to be able to open your word, to study it amongst friends, uh, family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, I pray that you would be glorified, that our hearts would be warm, that we would be drawn closer to you, that those things that we encounter in the portion of uh, text that we look at here today, that demonstrate our lives not living in submission to your will, that you would Uh, convict us by the power of your spirit, then in conviction that you would draw us by the power of your love, that we would recognize what it is to be a son or daughter standing and receiving the rebuke of the Lord. And that when we receive that rebuke, that our hearts would open, that we would be humble, that our lives would be malleable, that we would say, here I am, take, use me, change me. And so God, we pray for that humility, for the softening of heart uh, this morning. Father, we pray for those this morning who do not know you, they are far from you, uh, that this morning that you would come close to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that by your spirit you would convict them of sin, and then in love you would woo them unto yourself. God, we love what you are doing in and amongst the churches of our community, and I pray that this morning would be no different. We want to see a revival break out in Greenville, Texas, and beyond, and that through the work, the collaborative effort of the many churches of our community. So we pray for their time of worship, for their pastors, for their staff, for their congregations. Uh, Those churches who are facing strife and difficulty, I pray that you would bring your peace. For those churches and pastors facing a sense of, it's just too much, it's just too difficult, that your spirit would be an encourager to them today. That as they stand, they would have this renewed sense of purpose and life, that they would be invigorated to stand before the people you love and to call them to faithfulness in your gospel. God, we love you. Uh, we praise you. We submit these things to you and dedicate this time in the honor and renown of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So as you look at 4, 3 through 6, uh, you'll notice that, that one of the things Paul gets at is, is a conversation that really runs a lot in our lives, but I think it's a conversation that we're having in the wrong direction. So I want to want to start there, and then we'll read this and walk through. One of the questions that I get asked often, it, it really deals with the realm of, of, of kind of 
they're not ethical, ethical questions, so they're in kind of amoral questions. Not immoral, but amoral, and so they don't have moral bearing. So it's like, do I go to college A or college B? Do I move to town A or town B? How do I do this? How do I make this decision? So these are amoral questions. And, and we get into that and we begin to ask these questions because we have a sense that there is a right decision and that there is a wrong decision. And so we refer to that broadly as kind of the will of God. I want to live in step with the will of God. I want to be where God wants me to be. I don't want to be where God doesn't want me to be. And so we're, we're caught up in this conundrum of saying, oh, until we make the decision. And nobody likes that noise. And so they're ready for us to make that decision and walk in the light of whatever reality we're supposed to, right? Nobody likes, oh, we just want to see us make a decision. So I get that. But that's not the way that Paul comes into this, and notice that it's key when we look at this, that when we come to this understanding of the will of God as it's spelled out in this, he's talking about God's will, not in determination of what should be your next step, but as you take that next step, how then you should be. How then you should be. And we see that that's so much of a more important question to ask how we should be. And so as you move, as you change jobs, as you enter into a new relationship, you may feel some uncertainty, is this the right decision? But we can face no such, no such uncertainty in how then we should be. So when he's talking about it and he's describing the will of God, he's talking about the will of God in, in the manner of what characteristics should be true of you in your life and what characteristics should be untrue of you in your life. Let's look at 4, 3 through 6 together. Paul addresses the church and he says, this is the will of God your sanctification. This is the will of God said otherwise, your holiness. Your holiness. And then he's going to give us three modifiers for what it looks like to be holy. The first, he says, is that you abstain from sexual immorality. The second is that each of you know how to control his or his or her own body in holiness and honor. And he contrasts it. He says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then lastly, he says, you need to be holy that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. In this matter, this pursuit of holiness. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So he gets at it and we come to this understanding that when we are making decisions of what we are going to do, God is primarily concerned, as Paul gives us here, in how we are in the middle of these things. And so we begin to see that this passage, really what it does is it lays open this bifurcated reality, this split reality, that on the one hand, the sovereign creator God of the universe, the one who spoke all things to existence, according to Hebrews, Jesus is upholding all things right now by the word of his power, like gravity, molecules staying together, everything, God is bending his will, exerting his force and his power to hold all these things together. That this very God, his desire for you, for me, for us as a church, is that we grow in holiness. Like, do you get that? And so in the middle of facing whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever joy you're experiencing, whatever trial is before you, what God is primarily concerned with in the middle of these things is that you reflect him, that you grow in holiness. Now this changes how we experience the reality of our present situation, does it not? 
And so if you're a parent and your kids are wayward, if you're a child and your parents are unbelievers, if you primarily work with lost people, if whatever difficulty, whatever health struggle God has given you, and whatever spiritual or emotional struggle God has laid upon you, what God primarily desires for you in that is not you overcoming it. It's that you're transformed through it. And we begin to see the heart of God in this, that God is completely overwhelmed and enraptured with the idea that we are constantly growing in holiness. Now we meet that idea, and at the same time, the enemy is on the other side. It's like Satan hears that, he knows that, he, he gets that, like he gets together with other demons, and he's like, you know God's only got one plan, and so it's that they all grow in holiness. And they're like, I hate that plan. He's like, absolutely, so how can we thwart it? And Satan's like, I know what we can do. Let's make holiness their God. Let's make purity their God. Let's get them all to take pledges, and let's not have them worship purity and holiness and all these various things. And let's have their cheerleaders wear nothing but culottes. And let's have, nobody knows what those are? All right, so let's have them get in the midst of these things, and let's have them cover their ankles and cover their wrists and wear turtlenecks up to here, right? And walk around saying, nobody lust after me. Nobody lust after me. And let's have them see that as the ultimate good of what they can do. And the demon's like, that's right. Mm-hmm. Go, Satan. You're my boy. Satan wants to leverage everything in your life and every experience that you're currently doing and have you see it as a deficiency in God, a deficiency in you, and have you pursued that thing or wail and moan over that thing instead of growing in holiness. And so we see the battle lines are drawn. Every experience in your life, it, it, it comes in some sense that decision, that indication. That God wants to leverage all of your experiences to have you grow in holiness. And Satan wants you to experience everything in your life and have it lead to hedonism. Have it lead to something you pursue for your pleasure. Paul says it simply in writing from Corinth to this group of Christians in Thessalonica. He says, let's think about it from the direction. One example of what it looks like to grow in holiness, to grow in sanctification, is abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, this is, this is a common theme. This is something written over and over again in the New Testament. In fact, we can see it in the Jerusalem Council's words in Acts 15, 28 through 29. Luke writes and says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and, to let, and us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain, you keep from, you have no part in, that which was what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. So when the early church is getting together and they're trying to lay out kind of the do this, don't do this, uh, at the head of their list is a recognition that as a people of God, we need to keep ourselves from engaging in those things that make for sexual immorality. Now, maybe you've been married 30, 40 years and you're like, ah, like sexual immorality, like this isn't an issue for me, but it is an issue for the church. And really, in some sense, it is an issue for all of us. This is a corporate issue. A, 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 a decision, this is an idea that has cult, uh, goodness, corporate impact. And so even if it's not something that you currently struggle with, recognize you have a brother or sister sitting on a pew in front of you, behind you, beside you, that is deeply struggling with this. 
They're struggling with not finding their identity in sexual conquest. They're struggling with finding their identity in, in, in the last person that they were with. And they're struggling with the regret of decisions made in the past. We had a video moments ago where Leslie's sharing her personal testimony of what it was like to feel the regret, the sorrow, to live in the sorrow and the sadness of buying into a lie that says the answer for sexual immorality is abortion. And so the enemy comes alongside to her and says, you do need to feel sorry about this. You do need to feel terrible about this because this is who you are and you are that because of what you've done. And God all along is wooing her and calling her. saying, I want to grow you in holiness. I want to pull you out of the sorrow of what you have done. I don't want to say it didn't matter. I don't want to say it's not a big deal. But I want to let you know this isn't who I think you are. I want to let you know this isn't how I think your life is going to be marked and all that your life is ever going to amount to. He is calling her and pursuing her and pulling her towards holiness. Now look at 4 and 5. Paul offers us a, a, a contrast in some sense of uh, what it is to be the people of God and what it is to be the people of the world. <clears throat> he says, the will of God, your sanctification, that each one of you know how to control his, home, his own body in holiness and honor. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. First Corinthians 16, 18, 18 through 20. Paul writes and says, Flee from sexual immorality. This is why he says, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then he wants us to get to understand the gravity of this action. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So we come to this understanding that the physical experiences that we have through sexual engagement, through sexual exploration, aren't things that happen in a vacuum. They aren't things that we only experience in our corporeal being, our physical being, but they're things, because we are physical and spiritual beings, that say something about how we feel towards God. They say something about how we relate to God, and it says something about our regard for the Holy Spirit which indwells us. So if you're primarily, you'd say, listen, I get this, I understand, I love the Lord, I do, uh, you know, I go to church occasionally, I engage in these things, but I, I enjoy the experience of this sexual expression. What I would say is that you are enjoying something that God has created to be delightful and enjoyable and amazing, but it's, it's created to be solely experienced within the confines of heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. And so if you're engaging those things outside of the boundaries that a holy creator God has designed for it to be enjoyed in, then you're enjoying something God has not given to you. You're enjoying something God has not handed over to you. You're enjoying something that is not right for you within the realm and the experience of life that you are now in. It's not that it's not enjoyable. It's not that it's not great. It's not that it's not fantastic. God created sex for enjoyment. 
Now, the church at some point got incredibly frustrated and, and just kind of, oh, really uncomfortable with this, and began to sweat profusely everywhere and said that sex is really solely for procreation, for having of children, and we shouldn't use it any other way. But no, if you read the scripture, if you read through the Bible, you get the understanding that when God created sex, he knew what he was doing, and he created it to be enjoyable and enjoyable delightfully and delightfully experienced multiple times, not solely for procreation. But he says that each of us needs to know how to control our own bodies. And so how we restrain ourselves, how we live within the direction of Scripture, says something about how we feel towards the Lord's word and how it's revealed in this. Look at how he describes the culture. He says, the culture lives by the passion of lust because they do not know God. Paul writing in Romans 1 had a great deal to say about this, but in verses 24 and 25, he says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So when we look at our culture, we look at the way our culture is moving, our cultural, our culture is living a, a, a pursuit of sexual immorality that is so wild that it's almost pure in its pursuit. I mean, it is dedicated to. We look at simple things, like so. back on March the 8th in Florida, they passed the Parental Rights Bill. So this is the third uh, paragraph from this, the first, third point from this bill. It says, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur, listen to this, onerous, burdensome, insane restriction from kindergarten through third grade. Shouldn't happen between kindergarten and third grade or in a matter that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accord with state standards. And our culture hears this, and they refer to it as the don't say gay bill, which it doesn't say anywhere in this. What this simply says is that from this really small swath of time, kindergarten through third grade, the school shouldn't engage in these conversations. And our culture hears this restriction and pushes back on it hard. Our culture sees any restriction, any conversation about uh, gender fluidity or gender, cha gender change or any of these things, and they hear us speak to it from a Christian perspective, and they say, this is wrong, I can't believe you'd engage in these things. And I think as a, as a parent now, this hits me in a way that it didn't used to hit me when I was a teenager or when I was in my 20s. Because I really just said, look, you be you, I be me, and, and, and it won't bother me, it won't, it won't impact me. But you read about school boards putting books in public libraries and in school libraries that and advocate for an expression and experience of sexuality that's not just against the Bible. It's, it's, it's perverted at its very core. And so what are we to do as the people of God? I'll tell you, listen, if you're in here and you're a parent, the responsibility for growing your children in an understanding of holiness and keeping them from engaging in sexual immorality, it's your responsibility. Man, my kids are my responsibility, your kids are your responsibility, 
If you expect the public school or us as a church to raise your kids with an understanding of holiness and, and how to abstain from sexual immorality, you're negligent. Do you know that the average age that a child first encounters pornography is eight? And so if you're a parent and, and you've not thought through, you have a kid who's five or six and you've not thought through what it looks like to put a cell phone in that kid's hand at eight, at nine, at ten, you've not set common sense restrictions, you're not prepared to have conversations with them, you are negligent. And from a Christian perspective, I'd say you're borderline abusive. You have given your child access to anything that they can think, say, or imagine. And you're incredibly uncaring. And you're asking the culture, Siri, and Alexa to disciple your kid. Listen, if you're a parent in here, you have a child in your home, and you're not having regular conversations with them about sexual morality, then you're negligent. There's a great series of, of little books. Maybe you don't know where to start and you have young kids. There's a, a series of two books called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures that talks about what things are appropriate and what things aren't. There are hosts of material. There's, there's a book by a guy named Barrett Johnson called The Talks, and his whole thesis is there's no one talk where you go and you sit your, your child who's overwrought with hormones anyway, right? They're experiencing puberty, and you're like, you got the birds and you got the bees, and then babies happen. You know, you figure it out. Do you know how, uh, never mind, what did I get together? <laughs> I had this memory where I'm like four and I'm sitting on the top rail of, the, uh, of this, uh, the stud stall where we would bring a stud horse in. And that's like, that's my early sex education. I'm like, what in the world? Lots of questions that weren't ever answered. <laughs> Eventually they were, I've got three kids, but man, you need to be having conversations with your kids. And our kids need to understand that their decisions at 12, 13, and 14, man, they have impact. The rate at which uh, girls will take topless pictures of themselves and send them to their peer group is unbelievable. And when they're doing that, they're engaging in, in holding and sending child pornography. If you're not having conversations with your kids about this, you're openly inviting your kids to engage in sexual immorality. You're saying, this is okay, I'm okay with this. Or you're saying something worse, I, I love my child so little that I'm unwilling to be uncomfortable having this conversation with them. These are vital and necessary conversations that we have to have. Either you can be the one discipling your kids or our culture will, and it would love that. It's lining up for it, and it's going to do it so easily and so perfectly. Do you love your kids? And I think I would ask our kids and ask our teenagers, do you love the Lord? Like, do you love the Lord? Do you want to honor him? Do you want to live in holiness? Or do you love our culture? Listen, if, if we're going to say that our children can make legitimate, genuine professions of faith, then they are old enough to answer the question of, do you love the Lord? And if you love him, then you are willing, desirous to live a Christian sexual ethic. 
and apply what it is to pursue holiness in every aspect of who you are and how you live, regardless of how your peers and others view you and talk about you. Let's move on to the third point so that some in the back can breathe again. He says, it's the will of God for us. It is our sanctification corporately, us as a church, Ridgecrest Baptist Church, that we grow in holiness. And look at what he says, the third identifier of that is. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. He's talking about growing in holiness. And so when we begin to think about this, essentially what he's doing is he's giving answer to the question asked by Cain. Do you remember back in Genesis, Cain kills his brother Abel? And God comes down and he says, Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain's question is, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that is yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. And and one of the ways we transgress and wrong our brothers in this matter is by seeing sin in their life. Seeing them not give a thought to what it might look like for them to grow in holiness and saying, I'm okay with this. I'm okay with my brother or sister not growing in holiness. And when you do that, you transgress, you wrong your brother or sister in this matter. So this is some of what it takes for us. It's answering this question of, do you have a curiosity? Are you willing to have an awareness and to pursue an awareness to how your brothers and sisters in Christ are doing spiritually? Are you willing to ask the question, like, look down the pew, like, look in front of you, look behind you, and say, like, how is Dale doing in pursuing holiness? How is Jeff doing in pursuing holiness? How is Ross doing in pursuing holiness? Are you willing to pray that for your brother or sister? And there'll be times when you are acutely aware, either because it's sin against you or you just observe something, that your brothers and sisters are not perfectly pursuing holiness. And so then the question becomes, are you willing to pray to God and ask him, God, am I seeing this person accurately? Am I seeing this person generously? And then what would you call me to do? For them? Am I seeing this person accurately? Am I viewing this person generously? And what would you have me to do for them? Are you willing to pray that towards your brother or sister and stop transgressing against them and stop wronging them? And then lastly, are you willing to step into action? You're aware that a brother or sister here is abusing alcohol. You're aware that the way that they are relating at home is unhealthy. You're aware that they are negligent in some way. You are aware that you only see them in church a couple of times a year, even though Hebrews 10 gives a clear indication that you should be regular in attendance. You should be a vibrant and active participant in this faith community. And so it looks like stepping in, it looks like engaging, it looks like going to them, it looks like talking to them. Galatians 6 says it this way, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, say with me, any transgression. So that means no matter what it is, any transgression, be it sexual in nature or some other, 
any transgression, those of you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. And here's the warning. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. See, the reason that we need to be so careful to invest in one another for the pursuit of holiness is because lethargy is contagious. Laziness is contagious in a church. It is so easy for us to slip away from uh, a, a passionate pursuit of holiness to pursuing community. A passionate pursuit of corporate holiness to pursuing friendships, to pursuing relationships. How we grow together is by pursuing the Lord together. And as we do that, as a corporate body of believers, he makes us holy. And he makes that be the overriding characteristic for us as a church. Are you willing to love your brother or sister or not? Paul gives us this final warning. He says, the reasons we do this and the reasons we engage in this is because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As God watches you and how you live in your life, his rally call for you is repentance, it is confession, it is restoration over and over and over again. So when he sees you engage in sexual immorality, when he sees you engage in deceit, when he sees you engage in sin and love sin more than Jesus, his call for you isn't one of rebuke and hatred. His, one, his call for you is one of come to me, be restored, be renewed, be made whole again. God is an advocate and a cheerleader. But what we come to understand through this passage and in 1 Corinthians is that there is coming a day when you and I will each face our Lord. And when we face him at that time, we will face him as a God, an avenger. We will face him as a God who puts before us the ways that we have stepped outside of his will and the ways we have stepped outside of his decree. My prayer for us as a body is that when we walk through the line, we would be walking through quickly. And it would just be this echo of, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And it wouldn't be like when Jeremy walks to the line, well, good, oh, huh. Y'all come around here, check this out. Isn't this something? This is, get the trainees. So you say you were concerned about your brother, eh? Hmm. There's coming a day when we'll all give an answer. Ultimately, our answer will be, I put my full faith and trust and confidence in Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death upon a cross that he took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for my sin, for the sexual immorality of my heart, for my deceit, for my pride, for my arrogance, for whatever ways that I have sinned, Jesus has taken them. In love, he took them upon himself. In the power and majesty of God, even though he, was, he died and he entered into the grave, God raised him up again three days later so that he might overcome sin and death. And in his love and his compassion, he calls you and me to come and know him. To be saved from the consequences of our sin, saved from the consequences of the death due all. Would you join with me in prayer? Father God, I pray that we would submit our hearts to you. God, that we would love you, that we would grow in holiness, that we would passionately pursue it. And God, I pray for those of us who look 
at the ways in which we have lived and are living and recognize a change needs to be made. That you are calling us to embrace that change as you are calling us to experience the embrace that you invite us into. God, I want to pray for any in this room who do not know you. God, that they would come to know you today, that they would seek out one of our elders or speak to someone at the welcome desk about what it looks like to follow Jesus. God, we want to pray for the Christian today who's ensnared in sin, be it sexual or otherwise, that today is the day that they would confess their sin, that they would turn away from their sin, and God, that they would return to you. What a beautiful picture of your love and your transcendence. As we sang before the service, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That you would win us back. That you would call us back. That we, like a prodigal son, would leave the far country and return to you. As you approach us as the Father coming and lavishing us with kisses, killing the fatted calf, blessing us with new clothes, and placing a ring upon our finger, you welcome us back time and time again. So God, would you help us to worship you in the experience of that reality, in the truth of your love for us. God, we submit this to you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.